Good morning, Redeemer. And it's a privilege this morning to bring God's word to you. And let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, these words that we heard are your words. And your people are built on it. So in your mercy, Lord, allow these words of your servant to bring glory to your name as you build them through it. Exalt your son, magnify your word. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. No matter how hard we try, it is very difficult to understand what is going to happen in the future. And coupled with that, the times that we live are pretty uncertain. And things are rapidly changing around us. It leaves our students wondering what courses that they need to take in order that it will become beneficial for them in the future. Oh, people who are working, employees, are thinking what career they should choose that would be beneficial for them in the future. Economic pundits are not too sure how the markets are actually going to play out in the days to come. And financial security becomes a big question mark. Even while we claim that technology and science have advanced to help us with predicting some of the things in the future, gurus, pundits, psychologists and scientists are not able to help us with the anxiety that we have about our future. People are actually desperately looking for a sure word and a steadying thing on which they can study the course of their future life. We need actually assurances for the future. We need a trustworthy word. We need words that become action. We need words that become a reality. We need promises to be fulfilled. We just don't need words, but we need a word in the flesh. So when we read the Bible, we see God in the Bible saying things like this. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9 and 10 reads like this. Remember the former things of the old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient thing, times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He even asked the question around to provoke in them who is like him. Isaiah 44 verse 7 says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed a people, an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Prophet Amos in chapter 3 verse 7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. 
So what we see here in the Bible is a God who declares things that are going to happen in the future and then he fulfills them as he has promised. Little wonder, when we look at Jesus Christ, he is going about fulfilling everything that was foretold. Twice in the Gospel of John, we see that the evangelist John says that Jesus' own words are actually fulfilled back in chapter 18. Six times he says that the scripture is thus fulfilled. Moreover, we have seen earlier in this gospel, in the upper room discourse, that Jesus says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So the pattern becomes more clearer now. We see God in the Old Testament declares things that are going, going to happen, and when, when it happens, it kind of evokes belief in the people that he alone is God. What we see now in Jesus, the Son of God, he does the same thing. He not only fulfills the things that he foretold, but also of all the things that were foretold of him in the scriptures. In fact, the scriptures converge on Jesus Christ and Jesus the Messiah fulfills the scripture to bring about the eternal salvation that God has promised. Believe in him and be saved. Now the passage that we read today is a sobering one. And we stand in reverence to a great God who gave his son to die for our sins. So I urge you to turn your Bibles to the passage in John's Gospel, chapter 19. Now we've been through this Gospel for many months together now. Some of us who have been here with us, by now would know that this Gospel was written with a specific purpose to evoke the belief that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Earlier in this book, between chapter 1 and 11, we saw that Jesus is being portrayed as the one who does seven messianic signs and the events that surround them. But we see that these revelations and the signs that Jesus did was refused and rejected by the Jewish people. The second part of the gospel from chapter 12 onwards is now clearly directed to the specific work of Jesus concerning his death and resurrection to evoke the belief that he is the, the son of God and he came to fulfill the scriptures as the Messiah. Jesus is now steadily moving towards the cross. He has by now indicated three times in this gospel that the son of man will be lifted up. Back in chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus, he says that. In chapter 8 with his conversation with the people, he says that the son of man will be lifted up. And in chapter 12 also, he does the same thing. Turn with me to chapter 12 for a quick flip back, verse 32 and 34. Jesus says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ, Messiah, remains forever. 
How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? You see, Jesus' statement and the conversation provoked in them the messianic expectations of who he is. But it did puzzle the people when he said that he must be lifted up, namely indicating his death. But we as readers of this gospel should not be as puzzled because earlier in chapter 2, Jesus himself said that destroy the temple and I will raise it up in three days. So in, in an essence, Messiah would be lifted up, namely his death, but also he will remain forever because of his resurrection. But the Jewish people would not understand this. Why? Because they have rejected him and the works that he performed earlier in the gospel. And they hardened their hearts. And Jesus cites this quote from Isaiah it says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. You see, the Apostle John adds the note there saying that the scripture is fulfilled in their rejection of the Messiah. You either believe in him or you reject and harden your heart and you will perish. And from this point onwards, in this gospel, there are various passages that are cited from the Old Testament by Apostle John about the fulfillment of the scriptures converging on Jesus Christ. We see scripture is fulfilled from Psalm 41 verse 9 concerning the betrayer. We see that in John chapter 13. We see that the scripture is fulfilled in Psalm 69 concerning the hatred of the Jews without a cause. We see that in John chapter 15. We see that the scripture is fulfilled concerning Psalm 109 where the son of destruction is mentioned. We see that in John chapter 17 also. And as we come to our passage in chapter 19, we have a series of passages that are being fulfilled here. The sham of the trial by the Jewish authorities is over now. The trial led by a scared Pilate, the Gentile trial, that is also over now. There is no turning back from here. Jesus now will fulfill the, the scriptures by dying on the cross. The Jewish people have now declared, we have no king but Caesar. How ironic is to see that they were actually expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow the Caesar and the Roman Empire. Now, in the rejection of Messiah, they ended up having Caesar declared as their only king. They cried out to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And with that case, with that, the case was closed. Look at verse 16 and 17 in chapter 19. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of skulls, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. The term there, he went out in 19 verse 17 is in keeping with the Jewish custom that prescribed the executions for sins like blasphemy or Sabbath breaking or worshiping idols, 
and many others should actually take place outside of the camp to keep the people from being defiled. This we see in the books like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You see, the punishment was meant for those who sinned. But here we see Jesus, the sinless one, is now bearing the reproach like the one who has sinned and he is punished outside the camp. The idea was the camp should not be contaminated. But now in Jesus' death, the camp will be sanctified. Again, we see Jesus bore his own cross. And this reminds us of Genesis chapter 22, where Isaac was carrying the sacrificial wood, where he himself was meant for the sacrifice. And Jesus fulfills typologically what is meant to be carrying the cross. They took him to the place called Golgotha. Now, the modern day place is identified with what is now known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre with some questionable accuracy. But let me now point to you how crucifixion was done according to the Roman government of that time. You see, the Romans particularly employed crucifixion as a severe public punishment for slaves or conquered peoples or lower class serious criminals and people who led rebellion. A crucifixion could be done in various ways. Um, sometimes it could be an X-shaped cross where the hands and the limbs of the person is tied and stretched. Sometimes it would be a single pole where the arms would be actually placed over the head and tied along with the legs tied at the bottom. Sometimes it could be a T-shaped cross or sometimes it could be a regular cross as you see in the artworks. But the interesting thing here is that when the arms are actually fastened along with the legs, the body will actually normally fall forward, creating a great difficulty for breathing. The fastened legs would actually enable the victim to push up so that he can breathe a bit and get air. Without the fastened legs, the victim would die because of lack of breathing. The struggle for breath, coupled with the stretched arms, extended rib cage, and together with the pain from the scourging and the nails, must have been very, very painful and excruciating. Yet, pain seems to be hardly the focus of John's gospel. We don't see the way of the cross here. We don't see Jesus falling on the way and Simon the Cyrene carrying the cross in between for him. We don't see the weeping of the Jerusalem daughters on the way. We don't even have the conversation between Jesus and the robbers. Look at verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. They led him and be, to be crucified. With whom? Two others. That's all we get. We don't get the description of who these robbers are, but it's easier for us to understand because we have the advantage of the other gospel. And they would not have been ended up there if they were not criminals. In this now, 
Isaiah 53 verse 12 is fulfilled. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. And it is no-brainer that this is a shameful time for Jesus to be counted among criminals. Not only the pain, but also the shame. Now the world around can mock Jesus Christ as they would mock a criminal. He was numbered among the transgressors because of our transgressions. And a large inscription about him was placed on the top of the cross. Look at verse 19 to 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. You see, frequently condemned persons would carry the offense on their neck, written on a placard, and it is hung on their bodies and as they are led to the place of crucifixion. And then they fixed it on the cross for all to read. And this is therefore a design to show to the public what it means to go through this punishment. The place was near the city, so many people had the opportunity to see the victim and see the charge. Moreover, John indicates that the placard was written in Aramaic, which is the language of the general people, Latin, the language of the army and the presiding government, and also in Greek, the universal language of commerce at that time. It is interesting to recollect from Matthew's Gospel that this title, the King of Jews, was earlier used by the Magi from the East when they came asking Herod, where is he who has been born the King of the Jews? Weren't they expecting the Messiah, their King? But they brought up actually false charges that he was a treasonous one. Pilate himself realized that this was a made-up charge, and therefore he taunted the Jewish leaders constantly by designating Jesus as the king of the Jews. The title given to Jesus Christ there was a legal way of countering their hawks. And he gave them a curt reply when they protested by saying, what I have written, I have written. Now in this little ego battle between Pilate and the Jewish leaders, he is affirming one that would last for centuries for us to identify. The miracle here is that God is in control of the evil that was plotted by Jews and the Gentiles, and each of their actions will now become a great affirmation of the grand truth that he came to reveal, that he is the King of the Jews, their Messiah, the Son of God. In their rejection and in their mockery, they affirmed what God has revealed. My dear friend, the truth of that placard is still the same. Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but also the king of all who will believe in him now. And he will one day be manifested as the king of the kings. Ask yourself this question, do you want him to be your king? As the one who reigns over you and one who can lord over you? Will he not give up your resistance and your rebellion against this king, the dying king? 
oh, he will be soon manifested again, whether you like it or not. He will reign supreme over all the earth. Bible says in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for the wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take his refuge in him. He may now look weak and he is dying on the cross and he is dying a shameful death. But there will come a time when Jesus will reign supreme. It will be better for us to take refuge in him now as the Bible calls us to. No simple thing that is happening here. Everything is according to the plan. And look at verse 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who shall it be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Apostle John is now giving us further evidence from the scripture that these events were actually a fulfillment of the scriptures. For these Roman soldiers, crucifixion was a, a small-time business enterprise. They already considered that Jesus was dead. And hence, they were dividing their garments and probably his sandals or other stuff. But the seamless tunic caught their attention. And they agreed, rather than ripping it up into four pieces, they could enjoy a game of chance and see who could win the prize. But the apostle sees this as a witness there, as act of fulfillment of the scripture, even when the soldiers were unaware of what they're doing, namely... Psalm 22, verse 18. Now, when we look at Psalm 22, uh, we see that there is David who is actually expressing this personal lament, and he is a righteous sufferer portrayed in that psalm. The psalm is also mixed with expressions on confidence in Yahweh, but towards the end, he will praise Yahweh also. Since the Messiah was actually to be a promised Davidic king, John sees the details of these events as a typological fulfillment of what is to come in Messiah. Messiah is now portrayed as the righteous sufferer in Psalm 22, who is the Davidic king that God has promised them. Messiah is the greater David. You see, but the Davidic king will suffer. And it is important for John to remove the misconception from among the Jews that Messiah is going to be a political king, but to portray him as the one who suffers for their good. It is important as the gospel is spreading among the Jewish people. And Jesus the Messiah fulfills the scriptures to bring about the eternal salvation that God has promised. We better believe in him and be saved. Dear friends, lest we make the same mistake, Jesus came to offer eternal salvation and eternal future, not a political change or economic prosperity or even good health. How foolish if we are to think 
that Jesus is a political and a power displaying king. How ignorant it will be for us to assume that his kingdom is of this world. How foolish if you have forgotten that he came to give up his life as a ransom for our sins. How foolish also if we are impatient and forgot that if the master suffered, we also will suffer. And a Christianity without suffering will be ripped off its master, will be devoid of its calling, and will not fulfill what God has commanded us. David suffered. Jesus, the greater David, also suffered. And we who follow him will also suffer. For what? For his namesake, for his kingdom's sake, for his great gospel's sake. The righteous will suffer in this world. And there is no crown before the cross. While the soldiers were busy in their game, Jesus displayed his concern for those who were with him. Look at verse 25 and 26. By standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. There are actually four who were along with John in this scene. Jesus, uh, sorry, um, John, and Jesus' mother, Mary, his mother's sister, who is unnamed here, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. But the attention is particularly towards Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Jesus, she is actually experiencing the pain watching her son suffer on the cross. She would recollect what Simeon had told her some 30 years back, that there is going to be a piercing of her heart. But while he was in the ministry, her own role was actually limited. The few times that she appeared in the scene, she got unusual responses from Jesus Christ and sometimes even some rebukes from him. You see, the relationship between Jesus and his mother has changed ever since his ministry began in Cana. You recollect the scene there. But now he's making it even more clearer to her. He is no more Mary's little chap, but the son of God and Mary's redeemer, therefore. Mary would need a savior just as you and I do. So it is because of this, he first takes the step to address her, to redirect her attention and say to her, woman, this is your son. And then only he turns to John and asks him to take care of her. And John takes her into his own home. And now we see that there are more scriptures going to be fulfilled in that passage. Now, we must remember that our Bible has actually a portion called the Old Testament, which I'm sure that is not the greatest favorite part of the Bible that many of us are reading. But it would be good for us to read, study, and understand the Old Testament scriptures because there are more than 330 messianic promises that actually converge on Jesus Christ. 
didn't he actually say post-resurrection, on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things that concern himself. Look at verse 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus is now nearing his death, yet he has not fulfilled every scripture. The last scripture is from Psalm 69, verse 21, that he will fulfill according to the scripture. Now, the same psalm is actually quoted twice in the scripture, uh, twice in this gospel, back in chapter 2, verse 17, and 15, verse 25. But here, it is particularly quoted in response to what Jesus said, that I thirst. It reads thus, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The wine mixed with myrrh in Mark's gospel should not be actually confused with the sour wine that is mentioned here. That actually is a sedative and Jesus refused it because he wanted to take the full weight of the pain that the father has assigned him to drink that cup. But here he is offered sour wine or wine vinegar. It is a cheap drink that the soldiers used. Jesus, in order to fulfill the scriptures, received it. And he is actually fulfilling the Davidic experiences in Psalm 69, which actually constitute to a typological fulfillment as Jesus is the greater David. But we must also remember that by his thirst, he fulfills a thirst-quenching promise that he made in John chapter 7, which reads, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The cross of Christ will now become a source of living water. Brothers and sisters, Jesus actually fulfills the scripture to bring about the eternal salvation that God has promised. Would you not believe in him and be saved? Jesus now has accomplished everything that the Father has assigned him. Look at verse 30. When Jesus has received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now the word finished in the original language, tetelestai, means accomplished. The cross of Christ is actually a completion of the work that the Father gave the Son to fulfill the scriptures, even to the smallest detail. There are no mistakes here. And Jesus is not a helpless victim who is subjected to the evil plot of the Jews and the Gentiles, but he is in absolute control here. You would do well to recollect what Jesus has said, that he lay his life down on his own accord, and he has authority to take it up again in John chapter 10. He also said that the ruler of this world has no claim on me. 
back in John chapter 14. Then he reminded Pilate that you have no authority on me except that was given by the Father. In 19, earlier we read that. This is actually not a groan of a victim, but the proclamation of a victor. This is a shout of a triumph. In this moment of suffering and despair, God, the person of Jesus Christ, declares victory over the forces of sin and death, a victory that is not secured without the cross, but through the means of the cross. And so it means the work of redemption is now completed. All things that have been done, which the law of God has required, all things are fulfilled, which the prophecies predicted, all things were brought to pass, which the types foretold, all things accomplished with the Father has given the Son to do. All things that were performed that was necessary for redemption, everything was completed and accomplished. Nothing was left. The ransom was paid. The conflict was endured. The sin's wages were paid. Divine justice and wrath was satisfied. Everything was accomplished. It is accomplished. Tetelestai. It is a victor's cry, not a victim's groan. Thus the songwriter says. Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows its head. Curtain torn into two. Dead are raised to life. Finished. The victory cry. My dear friend, if you're wondering, what good deeds must I do in order to be saved? Nothing. But believe that Jesus has accomplished everything that was necessary for you to be saved through that cross. If you're wondering, what more do I need to do in order to stay in salvation? Nothing. There is nothing more to be done and nothing more you can add. It is finished. It is accomplished. And therefore, we can say, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand completely forgiven at the cross. Dear friend, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures to secure your eternal salvation that God has promised. Would you not now believe and be saved? Or you think that the scripture fulfillment is over? Not really. Look at verse 31 to 36. It was the day of preparation. And you may ask, preparation for what? You see, the Jewish feast of Passover was celebrated in remembrance of the events that surrounding the captivity of Israel, Israel people or Israelites in Egypt and the plague that came to relieve them from a stubborn, a stubborn Pharaoh. The angel of death came and killed all the firstborn in that land, but Israelites were foretold that if they would kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of their houses, the angel of death will pass over them. Now Jesus here is actually depicted as the fulfillment of the Passover, as the sacrificial lamb that John pointed out, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. To observe the ritual purity concerning dead bodies, the Jewish people went and asked Pilate to remove the dead bodies from the cross. And they want to hasten their death. For it says, 
Curse is a man who is hung on the hung on the tree, and you shall not defile the land that the Lord God is giving you. Back in Deuteronomy, so they asked Pilate to break their bones on the legs, and it will hasten their death because they won't be able to push with their legs to get the gasp of breath. But when they came to Jesus Christ, they found out that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. And John says that this is actually a fulfillment of the scripture, so that when you hear, you may believe. Look at verse thirty-four to thirty-seven. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He saw it was; it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Again, scriptures from the Old Testament is being fulfilled, and you may ask, which are those ones? And there are two sets. The first one comes from Psalm thirty-four, verse twenty, which shows that God is caring for the righteous man. It says, "He keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken." And the second one is from the Passover specification that God has laid for the Israelites back in Exodus chapter twelve and Numbers nine, that none of the bones of the Passover lamb may be broken. You see, Jesus is the righteous one, whose bones are not broken, as God would preserve that righteous man. But Jesus is also the Passover lamb, unblemished. Not one of his bones will be broken. He, the perfect one. Died for our imperfections. Look at verse thirty-seven, and again another scripture says, "They will look on him whom they have pierced." This comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter twelve, verse ten. Now we, as the church, has gone through the book of Zechariah recently, and Zechariah chapter twelve to fourteen is the concluding section of that particular book. There it focuses on Yahweh's actions on the nations, while chapter twelve, verse one to eight, describes the the external events that are to occur in Jerusalem in that day. Nine to fourteen depicts the internal condition of God's people. Now Yahweh is seen as pouring out a spirit of grace and supplication on the people, and it is connected to the people who are looking on whom they have pierced. Aided by the spirit of grace, they will mourn about their responsibility for piercing the individual mentioned in chapter twelve, and they will ask God for forgiveness for their sins, resulting in cleansing of their sin. Here we get the idea of piercing Yahweh, and it suggests that God is not unfamiliar with the experiences of suffering. It is a first-hand experience that God is going through, and this will only make sense when we look at Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, suffering on the cross. Jesus, the God-Man, was pierced for our transgressions as the Messianic Shepherd and the suffering servant, in keeping with the pattern of the Old Testament prophecy. You see, as small kids. Can recollect the the songs that my parents used to sing when we used to 
prayed together. There was a song by Augustus Toffler, in Rock of Ages, translated in our own language, and we used to sing that together. He says, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flow be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. His side was speared, pierced, and there was water and the blood that came out to cure our sins. Jesus thus fulfills the scriptures to bring about the eternal salvation that God has promised. Believe and be saved. Look at verse 38 to 43. Here we see two individuals involved in his burial, Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph is portrayed as the influential man whom Pilate gave permission to take the body away after his death. But earlier, he was a secret follower. And now that status has changed. He has publicly come and asked permission from Pilate. With him is also another influential man, Nicodemus. We see him earlier in this gospel, whose life now looks changed. Earlier he came to Jesus at night, but now he brings burial spices and perfumes. How much? 75 pounds. You would remember that Mary actually brought about one pound of pure nard to, to, uh, to Jesus Christ to anoint him. Nicodemus now brings 75 pounds of burial perfumes and spices in an effort to honor Jesus Christ as a king. You see, coming to Christ may involve overcoming certain pressures of the world and the surrounding people, but he is worthy to be followed because he died for your sins and mine, for he grants eternal life through his death. These last events recorded in this gospel towards the end is shown as a clear indication that his death actually took place. There is no optical illusion of his death. There is no falsification of facts. The places that were mentioned are real. The people who were involved in his burial are real. It gives us the clear indication that he was dead and he was buried. Now, but where he was buried is an interesting piece. He was buried in a garden. Now, as Christians, when we hear the word garden, we would do well to recollect the Garden of Eden where life began. How ironic now we see that Jesus, the life giver, is now buried in that garden. But Jesus himself said this, unless the grain of seed falls onto the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it produces much fruit. He died to bear fruit. And church, you are that fruit. He died to bear and bring up. Do you see this? It's important that we believe and we become people who trust in him for our eternal salvation. Earlier, we talked about uncertainties of life, anxieties that surround future. Dear friends, Jesus did not come to fulfill the dreams about the best colleges to study, the best career to choose, the best investment to put in your money so that you may get financial security. But he came to clearly give you an eternal security and an eternal life. Would you not believe in him and be saved? 
Father. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you sent your son to fulfill all the scriptures to bring about our eternal salvation and our eternal future. Thank you that it is finished and our eternal life is secured on the cross. Now, O oh Lord, help us to be transformed by that truth and help us to proclaim it joyfully to others. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.